0: This morning, we are back, and we are back to our old friend, the Beatitudes, and uh, we're back to the God-breathed words of Matthew 5, 1 through 12, and AV team, if I could have my first slide, that would be a, a sweet help for me. Thank you. And these are the words, as we come back, we've been walking through these all fall, and these are Essentially, the words that Christ gave on a mountain some 2,000 years ago when he did so to his disciples who he had just gathered in Matthew chapter 4. He is the light of the world who comes to Galilee. He brings that light in a way that is very contrary to the world. He calls the people in Galilee to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he calls and speaks to the disciples in particular and says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And it's these men who have left everything, their fishing businesses and their families and they've come to follow Jesus. And as the crowds begin to gather as Jesus' ministry and the visible manifestation of God's spirit and his grace and his word comes into Galilee, Jesus really sort of separates a little bit. He goes up to a mountain and he brings these disciples to himself and he begins to explain to them what it is that sets apart the Christian life. What it is that sets apart kingdom life. What it means to be a child of God. And what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What it means to share the life and light of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because that is what he's talking about. And this is what it means to be a Christian. As we mentioned yesterday at the wedding. And as Will's testimony shows and also Sarah's. It's not just a matter of coming to church. It's not just a matter of signing a membership covenant, which we will do later this morning. Certainly those things have value, but those are not a substitute for the life and light of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the good news of Christmas, what we celebrate, and the good news of the Christian life, is not that we have a place to go on Sunday or we have a tradition to follow, but we have a Lord and Savior who has come to do what we cannot do, to make things right and the things that need to be made right it begins in our hearts because we all are sinners before the Lord and we can't make those things right and as Jesus walks through the beatitudes he's describing step by step by step the way in which he makes our lives right right There's a progression in those Beatitudes, and it happens step by step by step, beginning with poverty of spirit. And as we come today, we come close to the end, to the seventh Beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers and the peace of God in our lives. And as Jesus shows us, these are really the hallmarks of the Christian life. They're hallmarks of God's transforming grace in us, what sets his children, apart from the rest of the world. And as you'll recall, Jesus sums all of these up with one word, blessed, blessed. And this is what we celebrate really at, at Christmas time. The herald of the angels, all the things that we talk about, peace on earth, good will to men, these are the things that we're talking about. We're talking about the blessing and the blessedness that comes from Christ's presence in the darkness of our world. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and we will read all these Beatitudes, but our focus this morning is going to be on the seventh Beatitude. Matthew 5 verse 1, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I said before, and as you can see from the PowerPoint slide, this morning we come to the seventh beatitude, which is really, as we get to the end of the beatitudes. this is very much a hallmark of spiritual maturity. Really, one of the tests of maturity in Christ and sanctification, where are you at on this journey which Christ is taking us on and changing us and transforming us, has very much to do with peace and peacemaking. And this is why Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And given the divisions and conflicts that really fill the news, fill our world, fill our nation, fill our politics, fill our churches... And during the holiday season, not infrequently fill our families. In God's providence, Jesus' words are timely. But they're very, very, very necessary. Most people, when we think of peace, we think of the absence of conflict or the absence of stress. And it prompts us to say, is this what Jesus is talking about here? Is he talking about Removal of stress and the resolution of conflict when he's talking about peacemaking. And what exactly does Jesus intend for us to take away from this in our daily lives, in our upcoming Christmas holidays and time with family and perhaps time with difficult people in our lives? Is he talking about the resolution of? of conflict? Is he talking about the diminishment of stress? Is he talking about creating a sort of a stress-free bubble or environment in which we can have that experience which everybody else in the world longs for and craves and they find in their yoga studios or they find with medication or they find with alcohol or all of those other things that people use in our world in order to get a moment's peace and tranquility. And I think as you look at this and you hear what Jesus is saying and you look at the context, this is not really the focus, if I may say, of what Jesus is getting at. Especially when he says, you shall be called the sons of God. Most of us, as we come to peace, we think of it in terms of how the world frames it. And that includes in the Christian community as well. And an example of that is Ken Sandy's famous book, which we're familiar with and is one of the distinctives of our church, The Peacemaker. The subtitle, which may have been the publisher's selling point for it, it might not have been Ken Sandy's, but it says Peacemaker, and underneath it says, the subtitle is A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict. Peacemaker, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict. And the implication, whether from Ken Sandy or from the publisher, is that peacemaking is about resolving personal conflict, biblically. And a peacemaker is a person who resolves personal conflict. But when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, very clearly Jesus is pointing us to something far greater and far more wonderful than simply resolving personal conflict. Yes, that is part of peacemaking, no question about it. And it's not less than, shall we say, the four G's which we have in our church, which we commit to, that as you become a member, you commit to resolving peace biblically, But I think as we come to God's word and we come to Christ, there's something far greater and far more wonderful that Jesus is pointing us to and intending from the text. And if we limit our peacemaking to strictly resolving personal conflict and peacemaking is a tool with which we sort out our stresses and and conflicts with one another, we miss out on the greatest gift of all, what Christmas is about and what peacemaking is about. Peacemaking, brothers and sisters, is about the gift of the gospel. It's about the gift of Christ. And it is one of the reasons I believe that internationally, one of the criticisms that's come, and criticisms doesn't necessarily mean that the author is at fault, okay but one of the criticisms that has come is that many times the peacemaking process in biblical circles becomes very legalistic and it gets reduced to a checklist and people walk away and believe that they have peace when there is not actually true peace. And they believe they have peace because they fulfilled in their mind the four G's which are taken from the Sermon in the Mountain because they've done there, there should be peace. And surprise, surprise, sometimes there is not. And I think part of that process is when we take away imperatives... And commends and we take them away from the context which is Christ. And anytime time we take God's word and we separate it from Jesus. It's like we've got the shell of a car. With no engine, no motor, no battery, no gas. It might look great on the outside but we're not going anywhere. Clearly Jesus with this statement. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. He's pointing us to what it means to be a child of God. That's why he says they shall be called sons of God. A son is someone who is like his father. And in scripture, a son is someone who carries out the work of his father. It's someone who in every aspect of their life, their behavior, their home life, their work life, their married life, their church life. Someone who in every aspect of their life resembles God. Why? Because God is their Father. And because His light and His life and His peace is their light. And is their life and is their peace. Brothers and sisters, we can't make peace and we can't give peace if we ourselves do not have peace. And this brings us to our first point for this morning. Peace and peacemaking begin and end with the god of peace not us peace and peacemaking begin and end with the god of peace not us now this has been a recurrent theme that we've been walking through and it's a basic tool of jesus shows us in how to rightly understand and interpret the bible he was constantly interacting with pharisees and sadducees who knew the bible exceptionally well but came to the wrong conclusions and certainly that applies to much of american christianity And the place that Jesus always starts is he points us to God. He's the beginning, not us. The center of the universe is the Lord, not us. And brothers and sisters, when we start with us, when we start with our thoughts, our feelings, our expectations, our definitions of peace and our definitions of peacemaking, we are in big trouble. And the result is a distorted and deceitful and destructive gospel or pseudo-gospel and the result is a disor- distorted and deceitful and destructive understanding of what the Christian life is to be. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, the good news of Jesus Christ is that life and salvation begin and end with God, not us. Life and salvation begin and end with who God is and what God does, not first and foremost, who we are and what we do. And what Jesus is doing when he comes into our lives and he saves us is he's taking us out of the kingdom of men, which is the universe that revolves around us, our accomplishments, our achievements, our peacemaking, all the things that we do, the hymns we sing, the words we say, the sermons we preach, a world that revolves around us. He's taking us out of that hell a world that is built around finite and fallen creatures which is all about us and quite frankly is the source of many of our conflicts from vladimir putin onwards right a world that revolves around my desires my accomplishments my expectations and my negotiations on my terms he's taking us praise god out of that hell the kingdom of men and by his grace he's bringing us into his kingdom The kingdom of heaven. And that, brothers and sisters, is a kingdom that revolves around His life, His light, His work, His righteousness, His goodness, and His peace. And the world that the Lord created us in is this universe and this solar system that revolves around the sun, it doesn't revolve around the earth. And it's a figure and an illustration of the Christian life where our lives were designed to rotate and revolve around not us, our whims, our desires, and what works best for us. Hence the conflicts in our lives, right? Our agendas, our desires, our expectations. Instead, it revolves around the sun, and that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when he's at the center, brothers and sisters, the planets spin and everything has its proper place and the world functions as it was created to do so. And brothers and sisters, the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is he has come to put our lives and our universe back into order and the way God created it to be. And the testimony of God's Word is that peace is, first and foremost, an attribute of God. How often do we stop and think about that when we think about peace and peacemaking? Do we stop and think that peace is, first and foremost, an attribute of God? And this is why the Apostle Paul refers to God in Romans 15.33, Romans 16.20, Philippians 4.9, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, repeatedly, he refers to God as who? The God of what? Peace. The God of peace. And brothers and sisters, if you don't have the God of peace, you're not going to have peace. Let alone make peace. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the Apostle Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you Completely. And later this morning we're going to see the role of sanctification. And how essential sanctification is in the peacemaking process. Something that's not often talked about. And then in Galatians 5.22 the Apostle Paul contrasts the works of our flesh. Impurity, idolatry, strife, jealousy, divisiveness. And he contrasts that with the fruit of the Spirit. And the big three of the fruit of the Spirit, the first that he mentions, are what? Love, joy, and what? Peace. Thank you for saying it out loud. It's a testimony, peace in our lives, that we're not alone, but that God is present with us and He's in us. And all that He is, He's brought. To live and to dwell in this mortal coil and this broken down tent which awaits one day a resurrection where our outside is going to reflect the light that is shining inside. And from Genesis to Revelation peace begins with God's perfect and holy unity. God's perfect and holy unity. In the Old Testament this idea of shalom, shalom. It's that greeting that Jewish people will give to one another. Shalom. The idea of of shalom, it's a general reference to the state of God's perfect order and His perfect unity. His perfect wholeness and His perfect completeness. According to a Jewish friend of an author in Table Talk, it's described as nothing lacking. Nothing out of place. Everything as it ought to be. Nothing lacking, nothing out of place, everything as it ought to be. That is the description as close as we can get to this idea of shalom, God's order, His unity, His harmony, His wholeness, His completeness. And it's a little bit, a little bit like the illusion that we husbands try to create for our wives on Mother's Day or on their birthdays. That warm, clean, quiet house. Where the kids are happy, and they're healthy, and they're fed, and they're not fighting with one another. And the homework is done, and the lunches are made, and the rooms are clean, and there's not a shoe or a sock out of place, and the carpet's been vacuumed, and dinner is ready, and there are no dishes in the sink. Mothers, is that something that you look forward to when you come home? Husbands, how long can we sustain it? In a small way, that's a taste of shalom, the order and unity, the wholeness and completeness where everything is where it's supposed to be and everything is as it should be and nothing is lacking. And we all know that that is a miracle. That is a miracle. And when we go back to the beginning, this is what God is showing us in Genesis 1 and 2. God in His love begins creation by giving us shalom. And He shows us how He accomplishes that. From the beginning, step by step, in six literal days, the Lord God creates and orders all of creation. The heavens and the earth, the sun, moon, and stars. All living creatures, all living beings. He orders it all. And this is the testimony of Genesis 1 and 2. This is the way in which the Lord God brings His perfect order, His perfect unity, His perfect completeness and wholeness into being. And He invites us to enjoy it and He brings us into it. He brings us into this creation that lacks nothing and where everything is as it should be a perfect reflection. Of unity with God and unity with one another. And nowhere is this more visible than in the marriage of the first man and first woman. As they delight in the Lord and they delight in one another. And it's worth noticing that this is what peacemaking is. And it's also worth noting that God doesn't do it immediately. He does it step by step by step where his peacemaking is a process. And at the end he says that this is very good. And this is how God brings all of His creation into His Shabbat, His rest, and His shalom, His peace on day seven. And what is all this for, brothers and sisters, this peace? It's to bring His creation and the first man and woman to Himself. So that they can enjoy the glory of God. So that their lives can be filled with His love and His joy and His peace. And the Lord, through this process, brothers and sisters, He makes it very clear His gift of peace that He brings us into is entirely a supernatural work of God's Spirit and His Word. And the peacemaker, brothers and sisters, is God, not us. And without His presence and without His Spirit and without His Word, There is no true peace, brothers and sisters, and there is no true peacemaking. Why? Because we are His creation. And He is the one who holds it all together, not us. And He holds it all together by His Spirit and His Word. And so that's why when things head south in the rest of Scripture, godly people, when there is no peace in the land, they cry out to who? Ken Sandy, they cry out to the Lord. Psalm 85, verse 8. The psalmist says, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. I believe this is a reference to Genesis 1. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people. But let them not turn back To folly. And in scripture, the definition of folly or foolishness, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's to carry on in your life as if God doesn't exist or his word does not matter. Where do the people of God cry out for when peace is needed? They cry to the Lord, but they very specifically cry for the Lord to speak into their lives and to speak peace to his people. And brothers and sisters, when our lives are a mess... How often do we begin by praying? Or do we begin by trying to fix what the problem is? Or to say the things we think need to be said so everybody can be happy? How often, brothers and sisters, when our lives are a mess, do we begin by looking to our maker to be our peacemaker? How often, brothers and sisters, when our lives are a mess, is our urgent and most desperate desire to hear what God has to say to us and to hear the words He desires to speak into our lives. How much of our conflicts, brothers and sisters, come from us fixating on our desires, our works, what we've done, all the efforts we put into it, What we think about this situation and ultimately our words. Just think about the last conflict you were in. And tell me, how much were you focused on the things that you said or the things the person opposite you said? Now those things need to be addressed. I don't deny it. But when we forget God, we're forgetting our only remedy and our only hope and the only peacemaker in the room. How much conflict, brothers and sisters, is from the chaos and darkness of our hearts, where God's grace and his righteousness is secondary and our agenda is first. And this brings us to our second point this morning. Unrighteousness and sin destroy our peace with God and one another. Unrighteousness and sin destroy our peace with God and one another. This is the clear testimony of God's Word. You're familiar with it. And from Genesis to Revelation, beginning in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, where we've been as a church many times. So I'm not going to go together, go through it with you in detail. But all it takes is seven verses in Genesis 3 in the Garden for the rest and the peace of God's creation to be shattered, to be defiled, and be destroyed. And Adam and Eve are running They're hiding from God in fear. They're trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. And then when God speaks to them, they begin to blame God and one another for all their problems. And clearly by the time we get to those portions of Genesis 3, this marriage is broken and so is their relationship with God. Their peace with God and their peace with one another and their peace with all of creation is a broken mess that's deteriorating by the second Now, it's worth noting what I want to draw your attention to is why does the Lord God go to such great lengths to show us this? He's shepherding us, brothers and sisters. He's shepherding them and He's shepherding us. And look at how much time in Genesis 3 the Lord God takes to shepherd these broken sinners in love. To shepherd them, to show them exactly how His gift of peace has been defiled and broken. Why does the Lord do this? He's trying to show us, brothers and sisters, what is needed to restore what we have broken. He's trying to show us the heart of what has made a mess of all of this. And there are two things, our unrighteousness and our sin. Where sin is any deviation from the Spirit and Word of God, the God who created us. And as such, sin, and we don't think of it this way, we tend to talk about sin as a mistake, sin in God's eyes, is an act of infidelity to the Lord God who loved us and created us for Himself. And through Scripture, that descript- the description of that infidelity is described as idolatry and adultery. The Lord created us, loved us, gave us this life for Himself. For this relationship with Him, where He is our Lord and our God. And peace is broken with any sin. Because it's an act of betrayal, adultery, idolatry, and infidelity. We understand how that works in a marriage. We're reluctant to think about that in our relationship with the Lord. And in the case of Adam and Eve, not loving and trusting God and His Word is manifested in disobeying the Lord God's command. And where does this come from? It comes from impure and unrighteous hearts. Hearts that are not right with God. Hearts that are covetous. Hearts that desire a life apart from God and His Word. And this is basically what James summarizes in the New Testament. This heart and this pattern of unrighteousness and sin... But he shows the consequences of the way in which this defiles and destroys God's gift of peace in our lives. And brothers and sisters, it's the same pattern from Genesis 3 all the way to what's going on in the Ukraine right now. James 4.1 What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions or your lusts are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And James is just summarizing what's been going on since Genesis 3. Unrighteous hearts, adulterous hearts, idolatrous hearts, that manifest in sin acts of infidelity through the breaking of God's commandments. As you walk through the rest of scripture, God shows his people how sin and unrighteousness are offenses to him. They are not just mistakes. They grieve the heart of the Lord who loves us and made us for himself. The same way a husband would grieve over an unfaithful wife or a wife would grieve over an unfaithful husband. He grieves over it. It is an offense to him. And very specifically, it is an offense that incurs an incredible debt to God. Why? Because our unrighteousness and sin has defiled and destroyed a life and a relationship that belongs to God. How does that get fixed? We have to give God back a relationship and a life that is not defiled is not destroyed. And the Lord shows us, we are responsible. And He shows us what is going to be required to make things right. Because that's what's necessary for peace. And as you go through scripture over and over again. You're going to see that there are two ingredients of God's work. That are necessary for peace to be restored and peace to be made. Righteousness and grace. Righteousness and grace. What is broken has to be made right. And favor needs to be shown as well as mercy and kindness and forgiveness. If what is broken is going to be fixed and made right. Growing up in Canada, I spent many of my high school years and college years as a camp counselor. It's probably the only thing I was qualified to do. But it was a joy to me. But that meant I spent a lot of my summers at public pools. In Geneva, are you here today? Michael Fong, are you here today? You were lifeguards. You spend enough time in public pools with kids. Accidents happen. And what happens when those accidents happen? suddenly the peace at the pool is gone. And there's a mad frenzy of people trying to get out of that pool. But beyond that, the pools get shut down. Sometimes yellow tape gets put around. And nobody has access to that pool until special help comes. Is that a fair statement, Geneva? You need special help that a lifeguard and the kids who are swimming can't provide. Somebody's got to get called in by the city or whoever to sanitize, to remove what's defiled the pool, and then to clean it up so that it is fit for people to come back. And not until that has happened is there going to be peace in the public pool. Do I lie? And, brothers and sisters, this is the nature of what sin does to our relationships. It leaves a stain and it leaves a mark. It defiles the area. And it's something that we can't fix. And we need special help. And there's not going to be peace until that area has been sanctified or cleaned or cleansed. Until wounds have been healed. Until what's broken has been fixed. Until things have been fully distorted, until obligations have been filled and debts have been paid and people can come back to that pool with trust saying this is a clean place where I can bring my children safely. Now you all know that's how families work and you know that's how relationships work. When a spouse leaves their family, when a father leaves his children, it's not like they say, okay, I'm sorry and it's all better. How are those wounds healed? How is trust restored? How is a family placed in a position where they feel safe to resume and that everything is made right and everything is good? And I say this because this is an area that biblical counseling has gotten into trouble in, where guys have come and said, Yeah, I repent. Yeah, everything's good. I'm sorry for everything I, I've done and there's an obligation to put a family back together again, and there hasn't been healing, there hasn't been restoration, and there is not trust there, and it is not safe. Just because four G's have been fulfilled does not mean that that is necessarily a safe place, because what we need, brothers and sisters, as we come to God's Word, and what He makes clear is we need someone to forgive. We need someone to purify hearts. We need someone to come in and make new. We need someone to heal wounds. We need someone to make things right. And that's why the good news of Christmas and the good news of God's word is that he sent our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because he is the peacemaker who God sent because we can't do the job. And this, brothers and sisters, brings us to our final point this morning. True peace and peacemaking are found in Christ alone. True peace and peacemaking are found in Christ alone. In Isaiah 32, 17, Isaiah thirty-two seventeen, the prophet Isaiah, who's speaking to a broken nation that is defiled by sin, where there is no peace, even though people are running around there and Jeremiah saying, peace, peace. Isaiah writes, Isaiah 32, 17, he says, And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. What do we need to trust one another, brothers and sisters, when we've hurt one another? What do we need for restoration? We need righteousness. That's what... Isaiah is saying, and that's why Isaiah is saying, hey, the remedy is faith and trust the Lord. Look to the Lord. Israel, Judah, look to the Lord for peace rather than making all these negotiations with Syria and Babylon and Egypt and doing all these different peacemaking treaties that you're entering in. You've forgotten there's only one who can provide true peace because there's only one who can provide true righteousness. And this lays the foundation for the promise of sending a king who will bring righteousness. And, brothers and sisters, this isn't just scripture. You look around the world, you look around the church, you look around America. Do we really have what it takes to make things right with God and to make things right with one another? Do we really have what it takes to restore any true and lasting peace? And this is the reason why, brothers and sisters, peace and peacemaking in our world and the definitions really get shrunken down to be a bunch of steps that we walk through and typically what we end up with is a negotiated and temporary compromise. It's a peace that does not last. It's really more or less a ceasefire. But brothers and sisters, the good news of God's word is what is needed to make things right, what is needed to clean what is defiled, fix what is broken, heal what has been hurt. It's interesting when you go through Isaiah how much the Lord talks about healing wounds and also the prophet Jeremiah. In order to pay off the debt of our unrighteousness and sin, the Lord God has given us a definitive remedy. And that remedy is his son, Jesus Christ. And so that's why in Isaiah in the very beginning, one eighteen, Isaiah one eighteen, Isaiah says, the Lord, speaking through Isaiah, says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Saying, here's the problem. Here's why you don't have peace. But here's the offer of the Lord. And how exactly does the Lord God accomplish this? Well, the Apostle Paul explains in Colossians 1, 19 through 20. He says, For in him, this is Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And brothers and sisters, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 5. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Brothers and sisters, where does the power come from to heal the wounds when peace has been broken? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ His death on the cross. His blood that is shed. We see this in Ephesians 2.13 where the Apostle Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one. And so this is why in Isaiah 9, 6, when Isaiah makes the prophecy that God gives him about the gift of a child, what does he say? And his name shall be called Prince of Peace. Now brothers and sisters, it's worth noting that everything that we need for peace and peacemaking is actually found in the Beatitudes. Poverty of spirit, a humble heart, a dependency on the grace of God, not ourselves, to fix what we can't fix. Mourning and grieving over sin, beginning with our own sin. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that God would make right the things that we have broken. Mercy and merciful people, showing forgiveness And grace where it is not deserved. But it also involves, brothers and sisters, purity of heart. How can there be any peace and any trust if there are not pure hearts? Hearts that are entirely devoted to the glory of God and not ourselves and our agendas. And the beauty of this, brothers and sisters, as you walk through the Beatitudes, is this is what Christ has given his people. And this is what we find in him. A peacemaker is someone who has found peace with Christ and peace in Christ. A peacemaker is someone whom Christ has made right with God by faith. Not in his works, meaning the person's works, but faith in Christ's works and Christ's righteousness. And if you want to see what peacemaking looks like in Scripture, brothers and sisters, look at Jesus. And then look at the apostles. And the way in which... They make peace by bringing light into dark places by proclaiming the gospel. A gospel that begins with addressing sin and says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And we see that the heart of peacemaking, brothers and sisters, begins first with us having peace with God. With us being in the light and walking with Christ and by extension peacemaking, are those people who bring Christ into a dark world through the gospel. Because the peace that people need, brothers and sisters, yes, we need to resolve conflicts, don't get me wrong. But behind that, and even greater, the peace that people need is peace with God. Forgiveness of sins, healing of wounds and hurts, wrong things being made right. And as you see this brothers and sisters you begin to see that with Jesus and his peacemaking and the apostles and their peacemaking excuse me peacemaking is very much a process that takes time. And many times we do not have control of the process. What we can do is we can be faithful to point to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to walk by faith in his goodness, his grace, his truth, and his perfection. We can give forgiveness. We can give embrace. But at the end of the day, even Paul's statement in Romans 12. much as you are able, be at peace with all men. Showing that peace is ultimately not contingent or dependent on us. We're called to faithfulness in that process. We do need to be quick. We do need to obey the Lord. We do need to pursue peace, brothers and sisters. But let's not forget that peacemaking is about walking with Christ in those dark and difficult situations. And that with Jesus and the disciples, it was a process that took time. It didn't happen instantaneously. And that process, brothers and sisters, in God's Word is referred to as sanctification. Now, there are two types of sanctification. There is our positional sanctification when we're saved, where Christ takes control of our lives and we belong entirely to Him. And then there's the progressive sanctification, where He changes our lives step by step and molds us into His image. And we're blessed to have both of them. But sanctification is essentially Christ coming into our lives and putting... Everything where it's supposed to be, everything where it should be, and making everything right. And I'm going to steal from J.C. and his illustration this past week. It's really like Christ comes in to a home that is wrecked. A fixer-upper. And he comes in and he buys that house and he's got the deed of that house. And that house belongs to him. That's positional sanctification. No matter what someone wants to come and do, no matter who wants to come and move in, the deed belongs to Christ. It it doesn't belong to anybody else. But then over a period of time, by living in that home, Christ, step by step by step by step, puts the entirety of that house and makes it entirely new, the way it should be. The way He desires it to be. A place where He Himself can come And live with joy and delight. And fill that home with His love, His joy, and His peace. Why? Because He's made it right. And so, brothers and sisters, Christ making peace in our lives involves His speaking His word and truth into our lives. And bringing sanctification. And that, brothers and sisters, many times, it takes time. And we can only walk by trusting in Him. Now I know a number of you this season are dealing with broken relationships and it's hard and it's painful and many of you will confront broken relationships as we gather for the Christmas holidays and we interact with family members and others and there's this expectation sometimes that we as Christians are somehow supposed to manufacture peace so that everything can be right and good. Christ does indeed promise peace But he promises peace for those who by faith trust in him as Lord and King. And that is a peace, brothers and sisters, where we are dependent on Christ to make things right. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, that takes time. But as we're going to learn next week, sometimes that brings persecution and pain and sorrow. Because where Jesus takes us at the end of the Beatitudes is, if we have peace with the Lord... We are going to have enmity with the world who rejects Christ. And so there's two sides to that. But the side and place that you want to be is as a peacemaker. One who brings Christ in. Who points to the cross. And whose life is dependent on a righteousness that is not our own. And a faith that waits for Christ in His time and in His way. To do what he has promised. To make things right. Brothers and sisters are we willing to pray for that? Are we willing to wait for that? Are we willing to rejoice in that? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus. You have given us the gift of peace. You have made what is wrong right. And we want to thank you for that. But at the same time, we understand, Lord, that sometimes you brought conflict and challenges and difficulties in our life to sanctify us. To put things in our lives where they're supposed to be. And to grow us, Lord Jesus, in your love and in your joy and peace so that we might indeed become peacemakers who are like their Father in heaven sons and daughters of the Most High God. And so, Lord Jesus, we need faith to trust in your work, not ours. To trust in your righteousness, not ours. To trust in your peace and your peacemaking, not ours. So help us this day to rejoice in that and wait for it. And to trust in you. And would it be enough for us, Lord Jesus, that we belong to you and that you are our King. In your name we pray, amen.